Today on The Matt Walsh Show, a prominent psychologist suggests that white people should kill themselves, while another worries that white people are haunted by the ghosts of whiteness. It's just more radical leftism from mental health professionals. The entire industry is rife with it. We'll talk about the consequences of that fact today. Also, Dr. Fauci endorses vaccine mandates for children and makes a predictably misleading argument in favor of them. A security guard shoots a man because he wasn't wearing a mask and says it's self-defense. Hollywood churns out another woke remake. And speaking of Hollywood, why was James Corden stopping traffic and thrusting his pelvis in the faces of motorists? We'll try to answer that question and many more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, one thing that's uh, very difficult these days is to find companies that share our values. Um, as we, uh, as I always talk about, you know, in, in, in this culture today with all of our institutions being overrun by leftism, especially the corporate institutions, it's really hard to find companies that share values and then you're giving your money to, to people who hate you so they can go and spread messages that uh, you oppose. And that's why you need Charity Mobile. Charity Mobile is the pro-life phone company. Uh, with Charity Mobile, you can join a company that shares your beliefs and they're not going to cancel or censor you for them. Far from it. In fact, they're going to take a 5% of your monthly plan price and they're going to give it to the pro-life, pro-family charity of your choice. So they are working with you in the culture. Charity Mobile makes it easy to switch. You can keep your existing phone number and you may even be able to keep your existing phone on top of it. Excellent coverage with nationwide service on America's most reliable network. And also, of course, 5G phones are available as well. New activations and eligible accounts get a free cell phone with free activation and free shipping when you mention offer code Walsh. So make sure you do that now. Switch to Charity Mobile and support a company and causes that you care about. Call them at 1-877-474-3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention the offer code Walsh. Well, the American Association of Psychoanalysis and Clinical Social Work is an organization that you've never heard of, and you shouldn't need to ever hear of it. It's one of the many associations and organizations for people in the psychology or psychiatry or therapy fields, the psycho industry, as I call it, not so lovingly. You might think that the things these people talk about when they gather for their seminars and so forth would be little interest to you, just sort of dry and academic and only relevant to the members of those professions. But as it turns out, the things they talk about with each other do have a profound impact on the rest of us. For example, I'm reading a book now called Saving Normal by Alan Francis, who's a psychiatrist and one of the guys prominently involved in the discussions and meetings that eventually led to the release of the fourth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM-IV. Those conversations really mattered a lot to the rest of us, even if we weren't privy to them, because as Francis argues in his book, the DSM, especially the next and most recent edition, dsm 5 is a travesty which helped to create a situation where now any and all human emotions and behaviors can be categorized as sort of manifestations of mental illness. Now, the American Association for Psychoanalysis and Clinical Social Work isn't involved in producing anything like the DSM, but this group and its members do have some ideas about what sorts of behaviors and ideas should be considered disordered and how they should be treated. So that, to that end, the, the organization held a seminar recently one in a series of seminars titled Nice White Therapists Deconstructing Whiteness Towards an Anti-Racist Clinical Practice. On their website, they explain that the intention is to devote 2021 to a study of whiteness. Through a series of seminars and small group encounters, our conversation leaders will help us excavate white identity. We will explore our denial, disavowal, disassociation, and even pleasure in the searing traumas of slavery and violence that built this country and form all of our identities as people who are not black. Not black, that's our identity as white people. We're, we're defining the negative now as not black. The speakers have all made the negative connotation extremely clear, if it wasn't already. 
Clinical psychologist Natasha Stovall kicked things off back in March by rambling about how the ghost of whiteness might zap us of our psychic energy. This is all very scientific, you see. Listen to this. You know, whiteness is like something that white clients are, you know, really split off from often and that it comes back as a ghost and kind of interferes with psychotherapeutic work, interferes with symbolization, with mourning. Um, and then this disavowal from the identification of whiteness, create, you know, leads to a creation of the self that, you know, cuts one off from like empathetic identification from people um, who have a different, who are different in some way. And also, and then at the same time drains off, you know, sort of the psychic energy of the person, of the white person. And I think that that's like an incredibly valuable conceptualization that I think immediately kind of, you know, kind of encapsulates something that can be very useful as a way of thinking about the things that you see with white clients, including like these very typical presentations in private practice, anxiety, depression, uh, social isolation, isolation within relationships. Like these things I think are, are often, you know, you can be, depending on the situation, can be conceived as not just about whiteness, but not helped by whiteness, you know, exacerbated by whiteness. You know, she sounds more like a racist Miss Cleo than a medical professional. And, and she wasn't done. She also claimed that whiteness is hostile, violent, destructive, and annihilating. There seemed to be some redundancy going on there. Violent and hostile as opposed to violent but not hostile. I don't know. But that's really the least of our worries here. Listen to this. The really important piece of working with white clients is to keep in mind that, you know, like that when racism or when whiteness is deployed against people who aren't white, it's hostile, it is violent, it is, um, you know, it's destructive, it is annihilating. And that that's a piece of whiteness that we really need to like reconnect with, like that is something that we need to always be mindful of as white people and white therapists, that like what we see in ourselves and in other white people and from white patients is not the same thing that's seen by people who are on the other end of whiteness. Not to be outdone, the most recent talk in this series was with a professor of psychology at Duquesne University named Derek Hook. Professor Hook actually defended the idea that white people should commit mass suicide as a, quote, ethical act. No big deal here. Just a guy who teaches psychology actually advocating for suicide and advocating for it on a racial basis, no less. Here he is. Listen to this. He made the assertion that white people should commit suicide as an ethical act. And here's a, a quote from him directly. The reality in South Africa today is that most white people spend their whole lives only engaging black South Africans in subservient positions. My question is then how can a person not be racist if that's the way they live their lives? The only way then for white people to become part of Africa is not to exist as white people anymore. If the goal is to dismantle white supremacy and white supremacy is white culture, then the goal has to be has to be to dismantle white culture and ultimately white people themselves. The total integration into Africa by white people will also automatically then mean the death of white people as white as a concept would not exist anymore. So here's the kind of crazy gambit um, of this talk. I want to suggest that psychoanalytically we could even make the argument that there was something ethical in Delport's statements. Now, I suppose, you know, parenthetically, we could say that Delport's kind of a, a young, fired-up academic, and maybe, you know, there's a little bit uh, too much of a dramatization in some of his, his comments. But nevertheless, I want to make the argument that there is some kind of ethical dimension to his, his provocations. Um, I think that Delport took his white audience to the threshold of a type of symbolic extinction, or at least the contemplation of what that might be. He took them to a proposed end of whiteness, 
Or in more psychoanalytic terms, we could say that Delport offered his white audience the opportunity, one they didn't seem to appreciate for the most part, but the opportunity to contemplate what we could call the castration of, of whiteness. Of course, the most immediate response to Professor Hook might be, you know, you first, Chief. You're whiter than a jar of mayonnaise buried under a foot of snow. If you think white people should commit suicide, well, why haven't you led by example? Not, not that I want you to, okay? Only a malignant psychopath would want people to kill themselves. And unfortunately, we have malignant psychopaths teaching and training the next generation of psychologists in this country. Uh, so that's not, that's not what I would want to see happen. But that's what he says he wants. None of this comes as a, as a surprise. We know that this, the psycho industry is overrun with, steeped in, down to its core, far-left radicalism. And this fact is most profoundly demonstrated by the gender issue, which we talk about all the time. Of course, most psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, and all of their various organizations now affirm the idea that a five-year-old boy might have the essence of a girl trapped mystically inside him, or a 16-year-old girl might really be a boy yearning to escape her female shell, or she might... She might not be anything in particular, in which case our mental health professionals will happily refer her over to the plastic surgeons where she can undergo non-binary surgery, which is a thing now, to remove all sexual indicators from her body, or at least the ones they can remove. They still can't remove her DNA, of course, though I'm sure they're working on that problem as we speak. Now, the point is that what you just heard there in those clips is not an exception or an aberration. That, that was not a window into the fringes. That's mainstream. That's what the mental health experts believe. This is what they say. This is what they tell their patients. The exceptions and aberrations are on the other side. They are the normal ones. Now, we know that every institution in our culture has been infiltrated by the far left. There's no reason why the psycho industry should be any different. But the militant leftism among mental health professionals is especially dangerous, and it's worth thinking about, because these people those with the prefix psych on their job title, are in the business of identifying, diagnosing, and treating sicknesses of the mind. If somebody has a neurological condition like dementia, they'll go to a neurologist. So Joe Biden, you know, he may also consult a psychiatrist, but dementia is a physical disease of the physical brain, and therefore it's outside of the psychiatrist or psychologist's purview. No, so they're concerned with mental illnesses, sicknesses of the mind. In other words, they're concerned with deciding how and what a person is supposed to think. And what sorts of behaviors those thoughts are supposed to produce. When it comes down to it, they're really dealing with human nature. They decide whether a mind falls within the normal scope of human nature or whether it falls outside of it. Now, I've explained before why I'm frankly skeptical of the whole business. I'm not totally convinced that anyone can diagnose the mind, especially because nobody can even say for sure what the mind is and how it works and how it exists and why. The idea that anyone can go to school for a few years and then be in a position to determine whether an individual's mind is working properly or not is to me questionable. Now, that's not to say that mental disorders don't exist or that they can't be reliably identified and treated. It's simply to say that it's, it's a very tricky business. It's trickier than most people probably realize and so tricky that it would require an immense amount of scientific discipline and restraint, not to mention a deep wisdom and insight to do correctly. But this industry has not operated with discipline or restraint, and certainly not wisdom. It has instead run roughshod over the human condition, relegating thousands of normal human behaviors and thought processes to the mental illness bin. And it's acted politically and cowardly, changing its own positions, not based on science, but on political pressure and social trends. That's how a man who calls himself a woman went from, clinically speaking, a deluded mental patient to a hero speaking his truth in the span of like just a few years, really. There was no science to support this shift. There was none. 
There were only politics and ideology, and that's the primary concern of the mental health industry. And yet, in spite of these issues, people still trust these people to tell them about themselves, to decide what is normal and what's not, what's healthy and what's not, what is natural and what's not, what is true and what's not. And the industry has used this power in really insidious ways, and the results have been catastrophic. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you shouldn't trust any psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist? No, it just means you should understand the context. You should understand that these people are fruits growing from a tree that is poisoned at its roots. You can still find a good apple in there, but you have to, be, you have to look and be very careful. And then again, you know, I would say the same for teachers. I would say the same for politicians. People in my line of work in media. Caution and discernment is the way. Err on the side of skepticism because you have no choice. That's what it's like to live in a collapsing civilization. You cannot trust the institutions, especially not the ones who have helped to cause the collapse in the first place. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, I'm traveling uh, now. I'm on the road, and that means, unfortunately, planes, Ubers, cabs, that kind of thing. I got to deal with all of that. And uh, for me, that also means that motion sickness is part of the bargain, or at least it was part of the bargain until I discovered Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that uh, has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraine, hangover, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is drug-free, and uh, the best part, I think, is that it's non-drowsy, and uh, there are no side effects at all. It's just something that you wear and it solves a problem for you. This technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients. But now through Relief Band, it's available to the masses. How it works is Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of your brain that causes nausea and it blocks that signal. And that's a lot more effective than just taking a, uh, you know, a, a pill or something like that that you find at a gas station. Ensure that nausea is never the reason to miss out on life's important moments. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for Matt Walsh. Listeners, if you go to reliefband.com and use promo code Walsh, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code Walsh for 20% off. So, um... Joe Biden, well, we'll start with this. You've probably seen this, this video by now, but we'll play it as well because we can't, we can't uh, just gloss over it. Joe Biden was at the dignified transfer of 13 troops killed in Afghanistan at Dover Air Force Base over the weekend. This was, on yes, this was yesterday. Actually, Joe Biden had kind of a big weekend because uh, before that, he was uh, meeting in the White House with the Prime Minister of Israel, and he, he appeared to nod off and start sleeping <laughs> in the middle of the meeting, and the, the fact checkers have jumped to his, to, his, uh, to his aid and said, no, he wasn't sleeping. He was just, I think what they're saying now is he was resting his eyes. It, while someone was talking to him, he started just kind of resting his eyes for about, for about 15 solid seconds. No, he wasn't falling asleep. He was resting his eyes. That doesn't make it much better. You know, if the president of the United States can't even sit and talk to a person for a few minutes without having to rest his eyes, so that happened on Saturday. And then on Sunday, he was at the dignified transfer as these uh, troops were killed in Afghanistan, tragically, were, were brought home. And um, we'll play the clip here. This is from the Fox News feed. And the, the audio doesn't, is, isn't the point. It's more what you see. So if you haven't seen this yet, let's play this and, and, and see, what you, see, see if you can catch Joe Biden 
doing anything that seems a little bit inappropriate. You talked about Sergeant uh, Nicole G, who was the, one of the two female Marines who were killed among the 13. She was the one who posted that Instagram post holding the baby saying, I love my job just a few days ago. So he goes and, and he goes for the watch check very, very quickly. And then he realizes what he did. So he tries to play it off like he was just adjusting his hands, you know, and he waited until because he had his hand on his heart and he, he waited till they were bringing their hands down and he could just sneak the look real quick. Now, look, if, if this was, was someone else, I might say that the criticism is unfair and kind of tacky. I don't wear watches normally, but when I do, uh, I, I often will check them just sort of like reflexively, not because I'm bored or I want to leave wherever I am. I mean, it might be because of that, but also it's just kind of like you have it on, so you just sort of, it's a reflex. In fact, even though I don't wear watches very often, I'll sometimes look at my wrist as if I have one. I'll do that move. Um, so you'd like to give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt. And if it was somebody else who's has proven their patriotism and their love for country and their concern for other human beings, and you saw them doing that, then, then maybe you'd give them the benefit of the doubt. But um, here I can't give Biden the benefit of the doubt because of his general indifference and callousness. Not just him, but everybody running the country right now, the whole ruling class. That's, I think, a big, a big part of the story that they, they don't, they don't care that much about Americans. They don't care that much about the lives that are lost. Uh, I would have said that even before everything that's happened over the last, uh, over the last couple of weeks, but, but especially now, I don't know how else to explain what we've seen where there are Americans who are still trapped in Afghanistan and now have been officially abandoned. They're on their own, apparently. The total lack of urgency. Instead of having the attitude that we're going to find these people no matter what it takes, and we're going to get them all home safe and alive, no matter what, we're going to get our people home, all American citizens. They just have this lackadaisical attitude about it. Which, if you really care about Americans, if you care about people in general, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be able to help but have a really urgent attitude. But that's not what they've had. So because of that, because of this background on Joe Biden, I see that and I think, well, it, it, it is exactly what it looks like. He can't be bothered. He's, he's been inconvenienced. These 13 troops who um, he got killed, th th their blood's on his hands. You know, if he were a decent person, you'd think he'd, he, he would be there weeping. He would be overcome by not only sadness for the families, but also personal guilt, thinking about what he just did because he so badly botched this evacuation plan. And he had our troops there just standing around the airport for, for, for days and days, facilitating the evacuation of thousands and thousands of Afghan civilians and citizens while our own people are trapped. Um, and so this is on him. And you, and you would think if that really registered on him, then the last thing he'd be doing is checking his watch. He, maybe he'd be looking at his hands and the blood on his hands, but not his watch. So no benefit of the doubt for Joe Biden at all. Also, no benefit of the doubt for Dr. Fauci, who has now come out fully in favor of vaccine mandates for children. This is another one of the many issues that he's he is uh, flip-flopped on, and he's taken one side of it, then the other side, and back to that side, and back and back again. 
And now he's on the side of, um, of mandating vaccines for children in public school, especially. The reasons that he gives for advocating this policy are, as usual, extremely misleading. Listen. I want to ask you about some local issues. Culver City Unified School District in California became the first public school district in the U.S. to require vaccinations, not only for teachers and staff, but also for eligible students who are 12 and over. Now that the vaccine has full approval from the FDA, the the Pfizer vaccine, would you like to see it mandated for students elsewhere in the U.S.? And once it's approved for kids under 12, should it be mandated for them, too? You know, I know that a lot of people will be pushing back against that. But if you get the imprimatur about the safety and the strong benefit risk ratio for the children, when that gets established, which I believe it certainly will, by the FDA and the ACIP, I believe that mandating vaccines for children to appear in school is a good idea. And remember, Jake, this is not something new. We have mandates in many places in schools particularly public schools, that if, in fact, you want a child to come in, we've done this for decades and decades, requiring polio, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis. So this would not be something new, requiring vaccinations for children to come to school. Yeah, it's not anything new, but notice what he, the the examples he gives, measles, uh, mumps, polio, rubella, what what are those uh, what are those hepatitis aside? What do those other illnesses diseases have in common? Well, they all especially impact and affect children. COVID does not, and and that's that's the point. Okay, COVID does not. It's not just that it doesn't especially affect children; it's that it very rarely has any severe effect at all. And I've been beating this drum for months and months now. I've said this over and over again. We've got to keep saying it because it's true. That's, that's not like an, an irrelevant fact here. Now, Dr. Fauci and the people in charge, they want us to think that this is irrelevant. The fact that COVID is very, very mild with kids. We hear about all of it. It sounds very scary when you hear about the, the spike in cases for kids and, and all the millions of kids who've gotten it. I mean, it was f- supposedly 42 million a month ago, and probably more than that. I mean, those are just the cases that we know about. Um, and that sounds really scary, but then you realize that in the vast majority of those cases, this, it was, they had the sniffles. You know, they may have had a mild fever, they had a little bit of cough, maybe, or maybe less than that. And that's the point. That's the difference. That's the difference between... COVID-19, where kids are concerned, and like polio. And it's an important difference. And that factors in with vaccine mandates, it factors in with mask mandates, or it should anyway. But what they want us to do is they want us to pretend that everybody is equal in this regard. That everyone has, is, a. we have to operate as though everybody has a, a, you know, is in the severe risk, is in a high risk group, even when they're clearly not. That's how the, that's how they want the policies to be written, which doesn't make any sense now. It has never made any sense at all. 
All right, next, this is from uh, CWB in Chicago. It says, a liquor store security guard was acting in self-defense when he shot a customer three times because the customer was putting other lives at risk by not wearing a COVID mask. The guard's private defense attorney said during a, court, uh, a bond court hearing on Wednesday, he was you know, defending this and saying, well, he was, it was self-defense. Um, the argument did not sway Cook County Judge Mary Marubio, who said, quote, the victim fled the store, fell outside, followed by the defendant, who, according to the surveillance video, shot a second time. The defendant then paces back and forth and shot a third time. Holmes, who was barred from possessing a weapon because he's a four-time convicted felon and registered child sex offender, but was working as a security guard, apparently, was working as an armed security guard at the store on the 6,000 block uh, of South Racine Avenue when a 28-year-old man walked in without a COVID mask around 9.53 a.m. Uh, Holmes and the victim argued about the mask policy, and the victim eventually left. And then he turned around and walked back in. And when he did, Holmes met him with a drawn handgun and then shot him. Um, and now the defense, which fortunately is not playing out exactly, but the defense is that, that he was operating in self-defense because this guy was basically a biological terrorist and didn't have a, he didn't have a mask on. Now we're going to leave aside the fact that this was an armed security guard that got a job somehow, even though he was not legally able to possess a firearm and he was a convicted felon and child sex offender. So that raises a lot of questions, but putting that to the side, he, he was, this is someone who was taking what he's told about COVID and masks seriously. I mean, if everything we're told about masking is true, then actually we should let this guy out of prison. I mean, I heard very similar things when I was at the, uh, the uh, school board meeting. Listening to pro-mask, uh, they didn't have guns, they weren't shooting anybody, thank God. But... They got up there in front of the front of the microphone and, and they said that, hey, if you let your your child will murder my child if you let him wear go without a mask around my kid. Barefaced people are, are gonna murder me. When you, when you go out, when your kid goes out, when you go out without a mask on, you're killing other people. I heard that at the school board meeting. We've heard that at many school board meetings. That's why they put these mask mandates in place. And we've all heard this from the mask cult over and over and over again. You walk around without a mask, you're killing. You are directly killing people. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. It's totally insane and hysterical. But that's the, that's the claim anyway. And if that's true, I mean, if not wearing a mask is, an, is, a, is a murderous act, then it would seem to me that um, this security guard acted reasonably, given that fact. Which, of course, he really didn't act reasonably at all. But this, this just goes to show this rhetoric about masking, it has consequences. Okay? Like, it, 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 it leads to things. This is not happening in a vacuum. This is the consequence when you go around telling people that if they see someone else simply bearing their face in public, walking into a store briefly without a mask on, that they are a, in a, an immediate, dire, potentially fatal risk to you, well, this is the consequence. Because there are a lot of insane people out there, and they listen to that, and they take it seriously. Now, when you say it, you might not mean it seriously. This, for you, is all a game. This is just rhetoric for you. But there are a lot of people who believe it.
And uh, this, this falls on you, ultimately, I would say. All right, next here, the Mississippi uh, Governor Tate Reeves is being criticized today for some comments he made at a fundraiser. Uh, this is from Salon. It says, Tate Reeves told a Tennessee audience that Southerners are a little less scared of COVID-19 due to their religious faith. The uh, Mississippi Free Press reported on Saturday, the state has now recorded 8,279 8, fatalities, but Governor Reeves does not seem that worried. He said, I'm often asked by some of my friends on the other side of the aisle about COVID and why does it seem like folks in Mississippi and maybe in the Mid-South are a little less scared, shall we say, uh, Reeves said in a fundraiser. When you believe in eternal life, when you believe that living on this earth is but a blip on the screen, then you don't have to be so scared of things, he said. Uh, now God also tells us to take precautions, to take necessary precautions. Uh, so he's getting a lot of criticism for this, but this, of course, is true. And there's nothing wrong with saying it. The point isn't that, that if you believe in eternal life, um, that you should be reckless or suicidal and not care about your physical life. In this, in this life. It's just that if you believe that this life is it and that death is like a, a portal into a black abyss, into nothingness, and all of you will be erased forever and ever, then that would naturally cause a crippling, incapacitating fear of death. So it's okay to be afraid of death. You don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. If you want to die, then you're suicidal. But what we're seeing now, what we've seen with COVID, it, it goes far beyond that. It's people who are clinging on to this life so desperately to the point of not accepting even, even the most reasonable risks, not wanting to walk outside their house without a mask on, that kind of thing. You know, driving in a car by yourself with a mask on, jogging down the street with a mask on, that kind of thing. These are people who their fear of death is crippling and incapacitating. It paralyzes them. They can't function. Because in order to function as just a normal human in society, you need to be able to accept the inevitability of death and the possibility of death as you go about your daily life. Uh, I think it's easier for people who believe in eternal life and people who believe in, in an afterlife to do that. If you don't believe in that, then in a, in a way, I, I can't really blame you because what you're what you believe is that after you die, your body will decay into the dirt and uh, you'll be eaten by worms. And you will just be nothing. The black abyss of nothingness is a, is a it is hard to feel anything but, but crippling existential dread when you think about that, if that's what you believe. So I think it's a reasonable point. It's an important point that he raises there. But of course... Reasonable, kind of nuanced, important philosophical points are not things that, that you can make these days without uh, people crying about it. And next, a couple of Hollywood news items here. Um, because the networks haven't had an original idea in about three decades, ABC is now coming out with a reboot of The Wonder Years. The original, a classic, came out in the 80s, was set in the 60s, so it was nostalgic for most of the audience that watched it at the time. You know, they were like thinking about uh, when they grew up in the 60s. So if you're going to do a reboot, you would think that, um, which you shouldn't, but if you are, you'd think that it'd be set in the 90s so that it's nostalgic for the audiences that will watch it now. But because Hollywood can't even execute its own rehashed ideas correctly, this one is also set in the 60s. So it's the same exact time frame as the original, but this, this time with a black cast. So keep the same time, swap out the races. 
This, of course, destroys the whole point of the show, as most of the people who watch it aren't going to be people who grew up in the 60s. They're going to be people who grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Um, well, the people who watch it won't have grown up at any time in, in history because nobody will watch it. Those people don't exist. But if anyone did watch it, um, uh, it's going to be people who grew up in the 80s and 90s. So why would they do this? I mean, why would they do a, a, a reboot in the same time period, at the 60s, but just switch the races? What's the point of doing that? Well, let's check out the trailer. Maybe we can find out. Let's watch this. It's weird to grow up in a time when your mom and dad have to give you the police talk or when a presidential election creates a racial divide. But it was 1968, the year I turned 12, the age of locker rooms, bullies, and girls. My mom's making me wear pantyhose. Yuck. Yeah. Some people didn't feel like we needed to mix black people with white people. I didn't understand all that. What's happening, Chad? How's it going, Quentin? Black Jesus, you're trying too hard. But I decided what my bag would be. The Great Uniter. Think about how awesome it'd be to have our teams play each other. Why would you want to play with a bunch of white boys? Why does that matter? How do you know if you don't try? Isn't that what you're always telling me? Oh, okay, so, that, so that's why, of course. They, they want the whole point to be that white people are evil, and uh, that's a lot easier to do if you said it in the 60s. So that's, that's, what, that's really what it all comes down to, and that's why no, no one's going to watch that show. But they, they just can't help themselves. I mean, they, they must know at some level there's not going to be any audience for that, but they can't help themselves. They, can't, they, just, they just can't. Speaking of not being able to help themselves, there's a, it, more Hollywood news here. There's this new Cinderella movie coming out, a woke Cinderella, uh, woker than the last one, which I assume was also woke. But uh, the fairy godmother is pay- played by a dude in a dress. Now, that's the main thing. That's the main, the main thing that makes it woke. Anyway, apparently nobody cares about this movie or wants to see it. So the producers had a great idea. Um, and, uh, and so what they decided was, let's have the stars of the film go out into the street and uh, stop traffic and thrust their pelvises into the faces of irritated motorists. It's an unorthodox plan. I don't know if it paid off, but uh, here's the footage of uh, James Corden in a mouse costume and the fairy godmother dude and someone else all dancing in the street. Let's uh, let's let's check that out. Now, I want you to imagine something. Uh, imagine that you're running late to a job you hate. Uh, maybe you just got word that there's, I don't know, mold in your basement and it'll cost $4,000 to rip the drywall out and get rid of it. And then on your way to work, you know, you stop at Starbucks and they get your order wrong. Um, but the line is too long to go back around. And now you're late to your crappy job. And you're sitting in traffic and you're wondering what the hell is causing the holdup. And then out of nowhere, James Corden comes running up with a, with, a, with a J-Lo song playing and starts jiggling his genitals in your face in a mouse costume. I mean, that's the last straw right there. That's when you go full Michael Douglas in falling down, you know. That's when you experience a, a sudden and mysterious problem with your braking system, I think. And uh, you just plow through those lunatics. And, and so, some would say... Some would say, I do not say this, I don't say this, but some would say, 
you would make the world a better place in the process. If you were to keep just driving through those people. I, shame on the people who say that, because I don't say it, but shame on them. All right. Um, moving on now to reading the YouTube comments. Uh, this is from Mind Traveler says, one could make it's raining them a hundred times better by imagining it's about the giant man-eating ants from the 1954 movie Them. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's one way you could improve it. It's, it's raining them as we played during the daily cancellation on Friday. Another way to improve it is just for it to not exist at all. I think probably is the way to go. Uh, BK Lee says, Matt, the member of the Weather Girls is Martha Wash, not Walsh. She's an outstanding singer. I did get that one wrong. I, I identified uh, that is, so that's a fact check. Very rarely do I let anybody in the comment section or, or in general fact check me, but here this is one fact check and I admit you are correct. I did identify the lead singer of the Weather Girls as Martha Walsh and I was very excited thinking maybe this is someone who's related to me somehow, although it seemed unlikely given, you know, the racial differences. Uh, but apparently it's Wash, not Walsh. So I, I jumped the gun on that one. Uh, Tip Dia says, if Matt experiences hot privilege, then blindness is an epidemic. How dare you? But good one. And also you're banned from the show. Colton says, Matt, to be fair, you have to think about the hundreds of people trying to enter the Capitol that day. While one unarmed woman might not seem very threatening, the mob that she was included in was. I'm not saying Bird is in the right, but he definitely has a case for himself. And his non-apology was very Matt Walsh-esque. Okay, yeah, I've heard this argument uh, many times in, in you know, defending the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt. But that goes back to the question that I raised on, on Friday, which is, if that's the case, then why didn't any other Capitol Police officer fire his weapon that day? You know? Why was he the only one who did it? If, if, if this was necessary, I mean, there were, there were mobs of people all over the Capitol. If it was necessary to fire a gun to stop them, and they had to do this to, like, what, disperse the crowd? Is that, is that the idea? So it wasn't even that she individually posed a threat, but that, um, but that they had to do this to, to disperse the crowd? I mean, it's not just that no one else in the, at the Capitol did that. It's that from all of the riots that we've seen across the country, um, that never happened anywhere. So Officer Bird was, was the only officer at the Capitol that day who felt that he had to kill someone to disperse the crowd. If, and, and he's also the only officer involved in any riots across the country anywhere this entire time who's, who's, who's felt that he had to do that, to take that step. And the person that he felt he had to kill was Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed five-foot-two-inch two woman who was climbing through a window at the time and you think he could have easily just grabbed her and pulled her down. You know, she was in a very vulnerable spot right there. She didn't have her hands. She was, she was pulling her through. And so, so you know, was, was there, were, there, were there no other uh, options aside from the, from the fatal option? I find that very hard to believe. Um, another comment says, Matt, actually the case against Lieutenant Byrd is even stronger than you describe. You claim that he said that he doesn't know whether Ashley Babbitt was armed. Uh, he admits something worse. He said that knowing whether Ashley Babbitt was armed or not wouldn't have made a difference to his decision to shoot her. How is he not being prosecuted? 
Well, yeah, that, that's the point that I also made. I, I, don't think I, I don't think I phrased it as you said that I phrased it. That's how the media is phrasing it, where Officer Byrd said that he didn't know if she was armed. Um, that would be one thing. Okay, if he had said that, it'd be one thing. If he said, you know, I thought she was armed, but I didn't know, or, 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 or no, no, rather, the way the media is phrasing it is, he didn't know that she wasn't armed. Okay, but in reality, what he said was that whether or not she was armed was irrelevant. That's what he actually said, which is just an incredible statement that no other officer would ever be able to get away with, ever. What, did you think that the suspect was armed before you shot them? Well, but it didn't make, any, didn't make a difference. Really, it didn't? No other officer would have been able to get away with that. Not even close. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. So bringing the show around full circle, there's been a newly intense focus on mental health in this country over the past few months, especially and more specifically in the sports world. As we all certainly remember, Simone Biles became a champion for mental health when she courageously quit on her team in the middle of, of the Olympics and then even more courageously cured her own mental health uh, problems just in time to you know, compete for an individual medal. Before Biles, Naomi Osaka, who's a tennis star, paved the way by dropping out of the French Open because she was afraid to take questions from the media. She said that taking questions might damage her mental health. And then a few months later, when she started taking questions again, this was a few weeks ago, a reporter promptly reduced her to tears and was condemned as a bully by her agent because he very gently asked a couple of really fair and banal questions. And that reporter deserved the reaction that he got, though. He should have known better than to ask questions at a press conference. The job of the press at a press conference as the White House press corps could certainly tell you, is to take terms complimenting the person behind the microphone. Unless that person is a confirmed or suspected Republican, of course, in which case it's a totally different deal. Your job then is to destroy them. So it's kind of a, there's a nuance there. The overwhelming emotional fragility of our nation's athletes has led to some important changes, though. For example, the U.S. Open will now have quiet rooms for athletes to retreat to to get in touch with their emotions and maybe have a good cry. And that, that actually kind of reminds me of an idea that, that I've had, should I ever run my own business. Um, my plan is to have special cry rooms where anyone in the company can go and cry and get in touch with their emotions. And, uh, you know, there will be a mirror there so that they can stare at themselves and repeat their self-help mantras and affirmations. But the mirror will be double-sided. And people on the other side can gather and, and laugh at the weakling. And then the sprinklers will turn on inside the cry room and the sobbing weirdo will emerge humiliated at which point they'll be fired in front of the whole office. I'll only be able to do this like once before I'm sued into bankruptcy and probably arrested, but uh, it'll be totally worth it, needless to say. Anyway, the U.S. Open has a very different approach, and Naomi Osaka herself uh, certainly has a, a different approach to, to mental health. Just yesterday, she published a lengthy note on social media talking about her mental health journey and, and what she's learned. Uh, she's being widely hailed for these reflections. It's being called brave and wise, and everyone says it's a very wonderful thing and very, you know, very affecting what she wrote. Here's what she said. She says, recently I've been asked, asking myself, why do I feel the way I do? And I realize one of the reasons is because internally I think I'm never good enough. I never tell myself that I've done a good job, but I do know I constantly tell myself that I suck or I could do better. I know in the past some people have called me humble, but if I really consider it, I think I'm extremely self-deprecating. Every time a new opportunity arises, my first thought is, Wow, why me? I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm going to try to celebrate myself and my accomplishments more. I think we all should. 
You get up in the morning and didn't procrastinate on something, champion. Figured something out at work that's been bugging you for a while, absolute legend. Your life is your own and you shouldn't value yourself on other people's standards. I know I give my heart to everything I can, and if that's not good enough for some, then my apologies, but I can't burden myself with those expectations anymore. So that's what she wrote. Now, this advice is pretty standard. Uh, it's not all wrong by any means. To begin with, she correctly identifies, which is important, the distinction between being humble and being self-loathing. A person who's self-loathing may appear humble, but humility is when you recognize your gifts and your talents and your positive qualities, and yet you don't, you don't dwell on them or expect anyone else to dwell on them. If you don't recognize those good things about yourself at all, or you deny them, or you're overcome by doubt about them, then there can't be humility because there's no opportunity for, hum for humility because you aren't even acknowledging the existence of the things that you should be humble about. So she's correct about that. She's also correct, of course, that you shouldn't be overly focused on living up to the public's expectations of you mainly because the expectations of the masses, of the mob, will differ wildly from person to person. And uh, many of the people in that mob really have no reason or right to expect anything from you at all. But does that mean that you should ignore everyone's expectations? Does that mean that you shouldn't try to live up to anyone's standards but your own? No, absolutely not. Th there are people in your life who, in various contexts, should have certain expectations where you're concerned, certain standards that they want you to live up to, and you absolutely should care about that. And you should try your best to get over those bars where they've been set. So at a very basic level, I know that my family expects that I'll be a protector and provider for them. My wife expects that I'll be faithful and loyal, live up to my vows. My employer expects that I'll do the job that they hired me to do. Um, it, it, in my job also, there are even expectations from the public or some people in the public that I do feel bound to live up to. I think the audience expects that I'll be honest about my opinions and straightforward. I won't pull my punches and so on. So with every title that I hold, father, husband, even podcast host, not to mention an American, most importantly Christian, there are expectations that come as a part of the bargain. Responsibilities that I have to something bigger than myself. And that's the case for everyone in every area of your life, big areas and small areas. If, if you're an Olympic athlete, it's expected that you'll go out there and do your best for your country compete to the best of your ability. These are expectations and standards that we should try to live up to. And if we don't live up to them, or even try, then we're rightly labeled failures. Failure is always judged against expectations, which is why people want to get rid of expectation so they can get rid of failure. But it doesn't work that way. One other point, I've made this point many times, but I think it's worth repeating. Osaka says, I'm going to try to celebrate myself and my accomplishments more. You know, she says, if you, if you get up in the morning and you don't procrastinate, then you're a champion. If you figure out something at work, you know, you do your job, then you're, you're a legend. That's, that's what she says. But none of this is the solution to the problem that Osaka apparently has. It's not the solution to the problem that lots of us have. Her problem, again, shared by many, shared by everyone to some degree, is one of self-doubt and anxiety and self-loathing. You can't you go your you can't you go girl yourself out of that state. You can't convince yourself to stop hating yourself by pretending that functioning as a responsible adult is some kind of major achievement. You can celebrate yourself all you want. You can pop the champagne, drop the confetti every time you complete an assignment on time or brush your teeth in the morning or tie your shoes, but nobody will be convinced by those theatrics, least of all yourself. The answer is not to think of yourself differently, but to think of yourself less. Osaka seems to 
you know, be up in her own head, constantly thinking about herself, how she feels about herself, how other people feel about how she feels about herself. It's like getting stuck in this self-obsessed vortex, the same vortex that most people in our society cannot seem to escape from. They're always looking within, trying to convince themselves to feel differently about what they see. And they may have intermittent, intermittent success with that, moments where they can say, you know what, I feel great about myself, and actually believe what they're saying about themselves. But those moments are fleeting because they always eventually fall back into the vortex, back into the cycle of self-hate and self-doubt. Here's an alternative suggestion. Don't worry about how you feel about yourself. Stop thinking about it. Think about something else, anything else. I don't mean pick up your phone and try to take your mind off it because your phone will always just direct you back into your own ego. I mean, look outward, actually outward. Go play with your kids or read a book about a random subject or go for a run or learn how to whittle or something or pray. Not about your own problems, but about someone else's. Or pick up beekeeping. That's a good one. I mean, do anything but focus on your own feelings about yourself. Try to spend most of your day doing things other than that. Turn your eyes back around facing the direction they're supposed to face. Extend your thoughts out in the direction of something other than your own reflection. Just forget yourself for as long as you can. It takes practice, but you learn, and that's the key. And that's the way for all of us, including Naomi Osaka. Though, still, because this is the segment, even though I'm trying to help her, in the end I have to still say to her that she is today canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everybody. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Sasha Tolmachov. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Nika Geneva. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on the Ben Shapiro Show, the Biden administration finally admits we'll be leaving hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans and green card holders behind in Afghanistan. According to the White House, it's time to rely on the Taliban, and Joe Biden can't be bothered to answer questions about any of it. That's today on the Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm.